I'm Trisha, and welcome to Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go, because I think I hear the recess bell. You are listening to a performance of César Franck's Violin Sonata by yours truly. This is one of my very favorite pieces to play, and this is a live performance from my music festival, Music I See in Iowa City, with the wonderful pianist Dominic Cayley. Today I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to be reading some of my own writing. This is an excerpt from a longer piece called Lunchbox, and I read it recently at the Asian American Writers' Workshop in New York City. Once, when I was in fourth grade, Tally McMasters came up to me and asked, Are you Chinese? I was waiting for my turn at Double Dutch. No, I said, eyeing the line. Well then, are you Japanese? She asked, peering at me intently. No, I said again. The line was getting shorter. I glanced at her face and I saw confusion because, well, she'd run out of options. Tally jammed her hands against her hips. Well, then, what are you? Norwegian? I was one of two Asian kids at Sacred Heart Elementary School. Sally Wu was Chinese. And everyone knew what that was. Everyone liked chop suey and sweet and sour pork. And everyone liked that joke. 
My mother is Chinese, my father is Japanese, and I'm in between, pulling the corners of their round blue eyes up, then down, then one of each, making a diagonal slant across their faces. My mother made me beautiful lunches then, packed in a Hello Kitty Toshirak box. A puffy heap of white rice surrounded by tiny mounds of side dishes that glistened like jewels. Glossy anchovies candied in soy sauce and sugar, freckled with toasted sesame seeds. Crisp bean sprouts with vibrant yellow heads. Grassy watercress steamed bright green. A perfect stack of roasted seaweed, shiny with sesame oil and sprinkled with salt. A juicy Asian pear cut into precise quarters. What's that? Susie Lawson stood, pointing. It's my lunch, I said, covering it with my right arm like I'd covered my math test earlier. It looks weird, she said. Susie was mean and popular and never talked to me. Everyone was either afraid of her or envied her or some combination of both. Lacey Stevens and Jennifer Lewis dressed just like her in their guest jeans with zippered ankles, and they wore glittery jelly bracelets but they weren't as pretty. You always knew that Susie was the best girl. Hey guys, Susie's voice got loud and the din of the lunchroom stopped to listen. Look at the new girl's weird lunch. The scraping of chairs against linoleum and the squeaking of sneakers as a crowd gathered around my table in the corner. Ew, look, you can see their eyes. Disgusting. What are those things? Worms? Look, they have yellow heads. Seaweed? Oh, ew. Seaweed feels like alien slime on your legs. Oh my god. The smell. Come here, smell this. Fingers poked and prodded at my lunch over my protecting arms. The tiny, perfect compartments were extracted as they crowded in, spilling and grabbing. I tried to get away, but the table was surrounded, the laughing and jeering continuing until nothing was left. The rice was smashed onto the table, anchovies dumped on the floor, seaweed scattered like a deck of cards. Through a blur of tears, I packed up the doshirak, the small geometric containers empty now. One of my twin star's chopsticks was missing. Over the weekend, I asked my mother to pack me SpaghettiOs and Oreo cookies for my school lunch. Puzzled, she asked, Don't you like your pop? I saw your doshidak was empty. I pulled away from her stroking hand on my hair. No, I said, a new note of irritation in my voice. I hate it. I want a normal lunch. I'd never spoken to my mother that way. On Monday morning, I opened my book bag at the bottom of the stairs. My SpaghettiOs were in a plaid thermos, and a stack of six Oreos was nestled in saran wrap. There was also, hidden under a napkin, a small container of anchovies. I crumpled the plain brown bag closed, slung my bag on my back, and walked to the bus stop. When I was a kid, there was this show called Stand Up Spotlight on VH1. On this particular afternoon, the host announced, Welcome now to the stage, a very funny woman. You'll be hearing more from her after this, I'm sure. Put your hands together for Margaret, 
Cho. I was only half watching, my hand aloft between my mouth and the bowl of rice I was having for my lunch, my chopsticks holding some of the myrchi that my mother had made, until I heard Cho, a Korean name. I watched as a Korean woman wearing a dark blue dress crossed the stage. To me, she could have been a unicorn in our living room that was how startling it was to see an Asian woman on TV. And not just Asian, but Korean, like me. And she sounded like me too. Back then, I was always a little surprised to hear an Asian adult speak unaccented English, since all around me, adults spoke English with a heavy coating of some Asian flavor. Whether it was my Japanese violin teacher's swallowed consonants, the hard staccato of the Chinatown kids in AP calculus, or the guttural lilt of Konglish spoken at home, I rarely heard an Asian adult who sounded like me. But for the next several minutes, I was enthralled. I wasn't alone. There were others out there, like me. One joke I remember was when she told this story about growing up in San Francisco and sneaking out to a club and getting caught. I watched her eyes that looked like mine widen in horror as she transformed into her mother, exclaiming loudly that, You cannot go to the clubs. That is where you know you get the, you know, the drugs and the pots and the cocaines. I felt a mix of guilt and glee as I identified with her because, you see, the pluralization of nouns? Well, that was something my parents did too. The endless errors in my parents' English put my teeth on edge even as I wanted to protect them from the world. As immigrants, my parents experienced many humiliations almost on a daily basis. The A&P grocery clerk that pretended not to understand my mother's request for a price check on the family-sized Fruit Loops. The United Airlines gate agent who sneered and over-enunciated when she told my father we couldn't sit together, raising her voice like he was deaf. The Lincoln Center ushers who rolled their eyes and cackled at each other saying, I can't even deal, as they yanked the Yo-Yo Ma tickets out of our hands, taking for granted that we wouldn't understand. But I understood, and they cut me, even as I also wished my parents were different, wished them better. Being Asian in America is a peculiar experience. One can argue that the experience of racial discrimination differs from race to race. The underlying drive of racism is to oust, shame, and eliminate that which is different. The motivation? Well, it's to erase the quirks and peculiarities of different cultures and races in the interest of creating a dull, smooth homogeneity. In my experiences of racism, the cuts are small and insidious. Asians in America are the prototypical model minority. We are smart and studious. We are good at math. We are quiet and docile. Louis C.K., he jokes about his relief when an Asian doctor enters the examination room, and we laugh. We are obedient. We are bad at sports. We are blind followers of authority. We lack creativity. The racism occurs in tiny, daily abrasions. Oh, you wear a sun hat, 
That is so cute. That's how you Oriental women keep your skin so perfect in porcelain. That's why you never age. It's a humid August afternoon in Vermont, and we're sitting on the porch sipping gin and tonics. He's a friend, and uses the term Oriental with some irony, smearing the tea to rhyme with kennel. But I can feel the jeer underneath the just kidding snicker, even as I laugh weakly and adjust the brim of my hat. I watch the lime float in my drink, and I boil a little hotter underneath the afternoon sun in silence. You know what? You're actually really smart. I had no idea, because you always do this sweet, quiet Asian girl thing and hide who you really are. This time, the friend is a woman, the mother of a small daughter, and in the plush, candlelit confines, and in the plush, candlelit confines of this downtown social club, the insult here is, once again, framed by what seems like a compliment. You are smart. But if ever there was a backhanded compliment, here it is. It feels like getting slapped, knuckle side up. Because in one misguided Dear Abby swoop, this woman, she insults my intelligence, my gender, and my race in less than 30 seconds. And of course, the question I long to spit back at her is, why are these things mutually exclusive? Why does my demeanor, perhaps understated, perhaps subdued, why does this negate the possibility of intelligence? I like being quiet. I like my softness. I like my gentleness. I like my girliness. I like my Asianness. And if there is an error in perception that these things cannot coexist with big words and actual opinions, why does she present this seeming contradiction as a problem on my part? This paradox, this is a product of her own narrow-minded perceptions, and yet she drapes it over me, dressing me in robes of deception and cunning. To her, I am the wily geisha, the shrewd dragon lady. And yet, I keep these thoughts to myself, and I clink glasses with her even as I file away this abrasion in my mind, throwing another log on the proverbial fire of my feelings of injustice, my rage. So why stay silent, you may ask. I ask that too. Injustices can happen on such a microscopic level. One hesitates to point them out because by doing so, one risks pulling the skin open, creating a gaping wound where before there was only a paper cut. Because what if I'm wrong? What if I'm just being crazy? But then again, there's death by a thousand cuts. Because if I were to say, jump up in indignation at either of these people, it draws into the light the complicated peculiarities of racism towards Asians, the slippery quality of insults sandwiched between compliments. Both of them would likely consider what they said to me as praise, approval. What's your problem? Because, let's face it, a lot of East Asians are successful, Many of us are socially and economically prosperous. We work hard, and we've made the system work for us. 
To complain about racism, this can be difficult because we do not necessarily experience the same disadvantages that other minorities experience. We seem well-educated, well-employed, middle to upper class. We marry interracially, make beautiful half-Asian babies, live in white neighborhoods without resistance. So what more could these Orientals, these gooks, these chinks, these slant eyes, what could they possibly want? There is a disdain, a looking down upon Asians, We achieve and overachieve, and yet we are not equal. We have to be perfect. And when we're perfect, well, then we're too perfect. We are conformist and boring, just a bunch of automatons. CNBC confuses Asian businessman Jeff Yang for presidential candidate Andrew Yang, posting the wrong photo over the right name. All look same. And yet, in my toolbox, there are at least two Asian jokes that I tell to counter my social anxiety. I tell them well, and they're funny. I've had more than one first date tell me that I am not like, quote, normal Asian girls, end quote. This is said to me admiringly as he wipes away tears of laughter. These jokes, they're a way in, a way towards social acceptance. And yet, again, I worry about contributing to the Asian stereotype, just as I worried and felt guilty even as I laughed at Margaret Cho's imitation of her mother. Because you know what? It was funny, and it was true, and I finally, finally felt seen as the child of Korean immigrants living in the in-between space. But how to also convey the tenderness and affection I felt for Margaret Cho and her mother upon hearing that joke. Because doing that accent, that was a way of acknowledging a difference. Acknowledging the struggle contained within that accent that holds our real love for our mothers. My mother, when she speaks English... She adds articles and pluralizes her nouns and confuses idioms and blurs her subjects and verbs. But she is also a doctor and a mother and a wife and a daughter. She is a great cook. She is so smart. And she's never kept a calendar in all the years I've known her because she remembers everything her family has to do every day. Dates, phone numbers, addresses. I don't know how she does it. She is fiercely loyal and she loves me every day like I am the only thing that matters. And when she was 25, she came to this country alone with $500 hidden in the handle of a vanity mirror. She learned to speak English by leaving her television on all day and all night listening to advertising jingles for Tide Detergent and Wrigley's Gum. And she cried every night, wondering if she would ever see her family again. Her accented English has a flavor all its own, and hearing Margaret Cho imitate her own mother made me feel less alone in loving my mother in the full glory of her incorrectness.
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. The music that's playing is more of my live performance of Cesar Franck's Violin Sonata with the wonderful pianist Dominic Cayley from my music festival Music I See in the special city of Iowa City in UNESCO City of Literature. You can learn more about Dominic on his website, dominickcayley.com. And also, please visit my blog, isitrecessyet.com, to subscribe to my mailing list for regular updates and also for show notes and more information about me and my other guests. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, and please consider writing a review and rating this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet community and to find like-minded listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.